All right, good afternoon and welcome to the Middle East Forums webinar and podcast series, Israel Insider with Ashley Perry. I'm Stacey Roman and I will be moderating this discussion today. Very pleased to have Ashley Perry, advisor to the Middle East Forums Israel office, join us here each week to update us on all the events going on in Israel. Mr. Perry will be giving us a briefing on current Israeli affairs for 15 minutes, then open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen to type your question. Now, with that, I'll turn the discussion over to Mr. Ashley Perry. Thank you very much, Stacey. Good evening from, uh, from Israel. Um, as uh, predicted last week, I mean, it's not, it wasn't an outrageous prediction um, that um, Netanyahu would ask and receive an extension to his 28 days mandate to form a government. Uh, usually, as I said, uh, after uh, 28 days, there's usually uh, an option to ask the president for an extra 14 days. It almost always happens because all those who are being negotiated with to form a government knows that there's that extra time. So they, they don't consider the 28 days the end of the story. So they're negotiating, you know, holding out uh, with the knowledge that there'll be at least more time, perhaps 14 days. Uh, interestingly, the president agreed to an extension, but only 10 days. Um, that's quite interesting, perhaps because the president fell in line with the case the opposition made that Netanyahu basically has the contours of a government and the only thing uh, that needs to be um, completed in the next 14 days is uh, some of the um, legislation that we talked about last week. There's uh, about four pieces of important legislation that uh, the future government, the current opposition led by former and now almost certainly future Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu needs to pass to satisfy his uh, coalition uh, partners. One of them, uh, which was debated today in the Knesset after passing its first reading, is to give a future um, Israeli security minister, national security minister, um, Itamar Ben-Gvir, greater powers over the police. Uh, it's been described Similarly, similar to what the defense minister has over the IDF, and basically where he can control policy. Now, there's a big debate, as there was in the Knesset today, whether that needs to be legislated or that's already what currently happens. Um, that's basically the case that uh, the police commissioner who came to the Knesset to give um, his verdict of what he sees, he says, well, it's pretty much already there. And you know, uh, uh, making it into law just complicate things. Does that mean the police won't be able to act without the direct intervention of the minister uh, in charge, the current minister of internal security, uh, Omer Barlev, uh, basically gave uh, his own evidence saying it's completely unnecessary and it's actually even problematic. And he interestingly gave um, classified information on some of the police tactics to try and make the case that in real time, the police uh, acts responsibly and doesn't necessarily need oversight from the minister. It's quite a complicated affair, but it basically just shows um, that uh, this government or the incoming government really, you know, is being, uh, it needs uh, to broaden some of the responsibilities of some of those incoming uh, ministers. It now seems that Itamar ben is prepared to climb down a little bit because of some of the criticism uh, and is uh, prepared excuse me, to moderate some of his former demands. Another piece of legislation is to allow 
Um, <clears throat> Arya Derry to serve as minister. Uh, as we as we said last week, he he made a plea bargain, which means he didn't sit in jail. Um, and then uh, uh, Derry himself and others are nervous that he would not be able to be a minister. Um, so they're trying to pass a law uh, to to ensure that he can be a minister. Other uh, issue is to give Vitaly Smotrich uh, powers within the defence ministry. The defence ministry in Israel is usually in charge with policies uh, relating to Judea and Samaria, not just policies towards the Palestinians, but also policies towards Israeli communities, uh, otherwise known as settlements. Um, and basically, that's where he will have a wide breadth of control. Um, and this is something relatively unique. So this needs to be legislated. And the final one is to make sure that factions cannot be easily dismantled. Uh, there is a worry within the coalition that perhaps some of the parties within the coalition will break up further, perhaps, I guess they're wide, maybe in the Likud or something like that. Um, so these are the four main laws that they really have to get a move on, pass through three readings. They passed through uh, their first reading relatively comfortably. Uh, the incoming coalition has a majority of 64 and they passed all the legislation, you know, with with uh, uh, 60 plus votes in favour. And there's no particular problem as far as getting the votes. There could be a problem, as I said uh, last week uh, with their schedule, um, meaning that this time next week, I believe by midnight, is when the president's uh, added 10 days will run out. He gave it on Sunday. Uh, what I do understand is apparently Netanyahu can go back again and ask for those extra four days. Um, and I think the president would have to make a strong case not to give it uh, if it was required. Again, it's very important to remember there's no one else really able to form a government at this point. Uh, so really, everyone knows it's Netanyahu's uh, government to form. Uh, very unlikely he will not. But the bottom line, which is really causing all of these problems, is one single thing. It's really the lack of trust uh, in Netanyahu by many of his former and future partners in the government. Quite simply, these negotiations have been dragging on uh, because no one really trusts uh, Netanyahu to deliver. Uh, at the beginning of this whole process, as we discussed a few weeks ago, Netanyahu really wanted to try and get this government in as soon as possible. Uh, within days, he, he said, uh, he wanted to just dish out ministerial positions and then leave policy issues afterwards. That was partly because he wanted to try and get control by the end of the year for various reasons, but also to try and put the policy issues off, knowing that you can kick that can down the road. Uh, his his uh, partners uh, in the co coalition negotiations, A, had seen this before, and B, wanted really everything to be agreed on up front, really What's going on is re relatively unprecedented. The detail that's, uh, that some of the, the, uh, the coalition partners' demands are really, you know, very detailed. They really want to dot every single I and cross every single T, quite simply because they know if it's vague, it will never happen. Uh, Netanyahu certainly doesn't want to give into a lot of these demands, especially from the right-wing parties, but even from the ultra-Orthodox parties, the United Torah Judaism, the Ashkenazi, um, ultra-Orthodox party um, gave a list of over 100 demands. Now, anyone who's been following Israeli co coalition negotiations over the years might be particularly surprised uh, by this number. Usually, you know, demands are in 10 or 20, but they usually um, 
go well up to the 80s, the 90s, and now apparently there's 100, some really, you know, what many portions of the public would describe as bizarre demands that there should be no electricity generated on on the Sabbath, on Shabbat, they, they feel that it desecrates the Sabbath. They want to have more beaches for separate bathing between uh, separate beaches for men and for women. They want to have um, uh, places where you can bury uh, a sacred text. According to the Jewish religion, you shouldn't just throw a sacred text, a, a, a Bible or a prayer book uh, in, the, in the trash. You have to bury it. Uh, so they want that to be funded by the state. Uh, and basically, you know, the ultra-Orthodox party, you know, reported that all its demands had been met. Um, this incensed quite a lot of the public during the week with some of these demands and some even more de uh, bizarre than I've mentioned. And, um, and Likud got a little bit embarrassed and said, no, these are demands. These are not part of the coalition negotiations. The new uh, leader of the ultra-Orthodox party basically said, no, everything's been agreed. Um, and, you know, there's, there's nothing outstanding. The, the, the leaders of the ultra-Orthodox party were hurriedly brought to the opposition leader's office, uh, Netanyahu's office, and they came out and basically said, well, we're still in negotiation. So it's clear that Netanyahu on that particular battle, but it's partly a facade, partly PR, uh, many of these um, uh, uh, articles will be agreed to in the coalition negotiations. Some of them will be perhaps under the table, some of them over the table. But basically, as I said before, really all the potential partners in the next government really have very low trust in Netanyahu. M many, if not all of them, have worked with him in the past and felt that they didn't get exactly what they wanted, specifically because it was vaguely written in coalition negotiations. It wasn't uh, defined. Um, so that's really what they're pushing for. A lot of, uh, even now, you have people like Itamar Benkvi who said what was agreed two weeks ago with Netanyahu suddenly is no longer agreed, and he's walked back many of these promises. So, you know, even within the coalition negotiations, we see the level of, let's say, distrust or the level of awkwardness with um, Netanyahu trying to manage all the different uh, uh, expectations of his incoming government. Don't forget, as I've talked about before, Netanyahu is receiving uh, messages from the international community daily, if not hourly, from Jewish organizations and pro-Israel leaders around the world, telling him that you cannot do this, you cannot do that, especially, again, the issue of the grand uh, child clause and the law of return has been brought up again and again, and Netanyahu has been very uh, strong in saying that that will not change, but uh, all the other partners seek some change. Uh, so we'll have to see uh, exactly how that one works out, because there is an expectation there'll be some movement there. Probably what happen is they'll probably create some committee to look into it, kicking the can down the line. Maybe they'll find some sort of compromise, uh, which leaves both parties not necessarily uh, ecstatic, but satisfied. Um, we're in the Knesset uh, this week. Um, uh, the president of the Middle East Forum, um, Dr. Daniel Pipes, was in, and we held quite a few meetings with the current government, the future government, and what came starkly through for many meetings uh, and also other conversations that I had is that there's a great expectation when this slew of legislation passes, not just uh, pre-government, but after government with some of the override clauses, perhaps some laws that will help Netanyahu in his legal troubles, 
once they've passed in the next few months, there is seems to be um, a lot of people who feel that um, it'll be after that that Benny Gantz's party, the National Unity Party, um, will then join the government. Now, that's very interesting that really we heard that from many, many people from the left to the right opposition coalition. They all seem to be almost certain that that is what would happen. Now, if you do the uh, 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 mathematics, it's clear that Gantz wouldn't want to sit with someone like Avi Maoz, probably not with Itamar being rear. So the question is then what happens? Is it, does, does Netanyahu jettison that part of his coalition? First of all, can he do that? You know, it's, it's not so easy to just fire people from the government, uh, especially if none of them are abrogating the coalition uh, guidelines. So it's unclear exactly how that would happen. <clears throat> Who Gantz would be comfortable sitting with? Would he be comfortable sitting with Smartridge? He has sat in a government with Smartridge. And don't forget, Smartridge controls seven um, of the uh, religious Zionists uh, well, when they were running together, seven of their 14, uh, Itamar ben controls six seats and Avi Maoz has uh, just one seat on his own. Um, so the question is, would uh, uh, Gantz, if he was to join, would he make it as a, a prerequisite that part or the whole of the religious Zionist party would have to leave? Um, and without the religious Zionist party, the government would then go down to 50. With Gantz's 12, it would go up to 62, which is less comfortable than the 64, but certainly manageable uh, for a certain amount of time. Certainly that would be probably preferable for Netanyahu. He could blame Gantz, put a lot of the blame on Gantz, uh, that he's not moving forward on right-wing issues or for his base uh, by saying, well, Gantz is... Uh, is holding me hostage on these sort of things. It would certainly satisfy the international community because they would far uh, prefer to work with someone like Gantz. So it would also be relatively easy to bring him in. He would go back to his natural position as defense minister that he held with Netanyahu in the past, with the government of Bennett Lapid um, and the uh, expected defense minister, Yoav Gallant, who is not a particularly powerful person within the Likud, would have to step aside, and I'm sure they would compensate him with some other um, uh, position. And you know, some of the other uh, members of the National Unity Party, I guess, would then get some of the vacated ministries uh, from whoever it was that uh, Netanyahu would have to jettison to bring in uh, Benny Gantz. Of course, this is at this moment speculation. But what is interesting is many people that we spoke to, many members of Knesset and future ministers and present ministers all said that they think that's almost certainly going to happen in the months ahead. We'll have to wait and see if that does indeed happen. Uh, it will certainly be uh, uh, an interesting move. And the question is exactly what would lead to it and what moment it would happen and how uh, Netanyahu would, uh, would have to make these uh, specific changes. Um, but again, until, until it happens, we're not sure. Benny Gantz did come out this week with an interesting statement and in saying that we will stand with Netanyahu against the extremist uh, moves and policies that some of the government uh, uh, expected incoming government will demand. So sort of giving it even a little bit of a hint there that um, uh, that he hasn't ruled out some sort of partnership and uh, uh, with Netanyahu, um, although publicly he certainly would. But obviously, behind the scenes, there are there is a lot of outreach uh, to Benny Gantz from the Netanyahu camp, checking the weather, you know, sort of thing. Um, 
in in you know in in seeing what any gas would need at what moment he would like to join what would he feel uncomfortable about supporting uh, to try and maybe get that legislative agenda out of the way before gas could possibly uh, come this is some of the suggestions that were made by uh, numerous members of Knesset uh, in the last week so you know it, it seems that there may well uh, you know be be no smoke without fire um, but that again we will not see uh, for a number of months uh, lastly before we go to questions uh, we had an interesting uh, event um, in the last 24 hours where Israel now it's been admitted but basically a a, a truck full of advanced weapons that was traveling along the Syria-Iraq border, ostensibly uh, for Hezbollah, was attacked. Uh, the Israeli chief of staff, in a, a relatively rare move, uh, admitted that Israel was behind it, said that we had great intelligence. There were something like 24 trucks in this convoy, and Israel made sure to only attack the one with advanced uh, weaponry. Um, I think I read that it was uh, drones, advanced drones, um, but it's not sure. First of all, it really speaks to the, uh, as, as the chief of staff himself mentioned, to Israel's intelligence that not only was it able to pinpoint the exact convoy, but the exact truck in that convoy, and it took out just that particular truck itself and was able to get all the way over. Don't forget, it's, it's, not, uh, it's not an easy flight for any Israeli Air Force pilots to get all the way across Syria to the Iraq border and then carry out what was really a pinpoint strike on something which Israel obviously felt was a strategic game changer if it would have ended up in the hands of uh, Hezbollah. So that was also a, a, an interesting and successful um, intelligence operation that happened this week. And the fact that the chief of staff mentioned it uh, shows that, uh, that they really want to send that message. On that note as well, uh, there has been a lot of talk that uh, because a lot of these other ways to get weaponry from Iran to uh, Hezbollah have been intercepted by Israel, there's talk of it coming in uh, to the commercial airport uh, in Lebanon. That would be a big problem for Israel because one can imagine attacking, first of all, attacking Lebanon straight on would be very difficult. Then attacking Beirut would be extremely challenging, but to actually attack a commercial airport uh, with civilians coming in and out on civilian planes would be a big headache for Israel. So there has been a warning that uh, that really Iran should not take this step. But one can imagine that if they did, it would be a very challenging question for whoever's uh, in the prime minister's position or in the security cabinet at that point, uh, exactly how it would act. Because one can imagine the diplomatic and political ramifications of such an attack. So this is something that the uh, the security uh, decision makers and opinion shapers in Israel are debating exactly what should Israel, what can Israel do uh, if that particular uh, maneuver by Iran to deliver uh, its qualitative, uh, uh, you know, advanced uh, weaponry uh, to Hezbollah comes in through Beirut airport. Uh, so with that, I'm happy to answer any questions that you may have. Great. Thank you so much. So last week, we actually had a question from Larry Greenberg asking, what will happen with the proposals to reform the Supreme Court? I didn't get to that one. Right. Um, well, the, the proposals are, are, are 
Basically, uh, we, we talked about this a, a number of weeks ago, but the problem that many on the right see is that the the, 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 the Supreme Court in Israel, uh, ever since the 80s, there's, there's two problems. First of all, the election of new Supreme Court justices, um, where the current uh, incumbents basically decide who's going to be their successors. And the argument that they would say is they basically just pick those who are ideologically similar to them, so that you have a sort of factory of what they would describe as left-wing liberal uh, judges picking the next generation of left-wing liberal judges. Uh, that's the first problem they would say, and they, they'd say that you know uh, the fact that the Supreme Court is um, is uh, disallowing certain laws or certain policies of a government, especially when it's a right-wing government, they say is is problematic from a democratic point of view. These are unelected in Israel. The justices are completely unelected by the people. They're not uh, beholden to the people. Um, and the fact that they do um, basically strike down certain laws, um, especially what they uh, what the right wing would argue when the right wing governments are in power is what they find uh, problematic. So they would like to change the makeup of the body uh, that assigns or decides who's going to be uh, put on the Supreme Court to weigh it more towards the political sphere. In other words, if you know, it, at the moment the, there are uh, politicians who are on the committee, but they are a minority today. So they would like to change that, shift that towards being a majority. Um, that's the first thing. The second thing is they would uh, like to have what's called an override clause. Um, ever since the late 80s with the Aaron Barak uh, revolution, um, Israel Supreme Court became one of the, if not the most activist courts in the world where they took on themselves um, uh, to strike down laws that they were not even asked by the relevant parties. They basically decided to get involved in areas where they weren't even invited. Uh, they decided to rule that something is against uh, they basically created this quasi-constitutional system of basic laws, not to say there weren't basic laws before, but they gave them more power, more weight, almost like a constitution without there actually being a constitution, because Israel is one of only a handful of countries in the world that doesn't have a written constitution for various reasons. And basically, uh, Aaron Barak decided, well, he's going to make basic laws like a, a, a quasi-constitution and use them to strike down any law that he believes is, is not in the, in the country's interest, I guess he would argue. Um, so what they're trying to do now, this current government is, um, is, is what would be called an override clause, which is basically if they have a, 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 a majority of over 61, they could then override a Supreme Court ruling that says that this a particular law is unconstitutional. Uh, so they again, they want to reverse the situation uh, and they want to make sure, they would argue, that those who are democratically elected members of Knesset, the, the representatives of the people, would have the final say in what should be law and what shouldn't be, as opposed to unelected, unrepresentative uh, Supreme Court justices. That's the, the case that they're making, that you know it's not going to go all the way from one extreme to the other. They would argue that they just want to reset the balance a little bit, um, from a court which has taken far too much power, which has really not um, modified its position, they would argue, and not allowed uh, too many different voices onto the Supreme Court. 
then they're looking just to sort of modify it and make it more democratic, they would argue, whereas if their opponents would say that by challenging uh, the, you know, one of the branches of government, which is supposed to oversee uh, the, uh, the, the political sphere on behalf of the people, both sides are basically saying the other side is undemocratic and what they seek to do is democratic. So it's quite a battle royale. There's a lot of ill feeling about it. There was a demonstration, I think the first of a government that hasn't even been sworn in yet. It will certainly not be the last. And the words that are being bandied around uh, by both sides are undemocratic, even fascist, et cetera, et cetera. So we haven't heard the last of this. This will be uh, certainly coming up as soon as the government is sworn in, because this is something which, especially the ultra-Orthodox parties, but even the religious Zionist parties, have made very clear that they expect to happen very, very soon, and will probably be in the coalition uh, negotiations in the final agreements as well. Thank you so much. Carrie Hillebrand asks, what are the budgetary implications for the extreme Haredi demands? What are the budget? Well, it depends who you ask. There are some who would say there's over 100, I think, is that possible? 100 billion shekels or something like that. Ten, uh, tens of billions of shekels. Um, but there's a lot of ways that these, these get passed. You know, some of them are very openly towards the uh, Haredi community like the doubling of the budget that every person who studies in yeshiva will get. That's already been decided. If whatever they get today, that will be given uh, double. Uh, some argue that it's crazy that they, they will get more than soldiers uh, in the future. Um, but there's other um, parts of the agreement which aren't necessarily openly towards the ultra-Orthodox, and some of them are even you know, not even written into the coalition negotiations, they'll just be dished out afterwards, you know, where sometimes they just say, um, you know, cities or towns with a, a very low socioeconomic levels and some other criteria, which basically means only the ultra-Orthodox towns will get such and such budget for whatever it is that they uh, decide to do. So there's a lot of things which are open, there's a lot of things which are less open, but certainly the budget's going to be in the billions, if not the tens of billions uh, of shekels. Thank you for that. Uh, an anonymous attendee asked regarding your last point with Beirut, uh, what did the other truck, do you, is, is it known what the other trucks in the convoy were carrying? Well, uh, again, you know, I, I just, I just know what I, what I read in the media, but it does seem like the vast majority, if not all the other trucks were just regular gasoline, petrol, um, bringing fuel um, across. And this seemed to be the outlier. Um, that it was actually carrying not fuel, but uh, advanced weaponry. And that, that's what I've read. I have no inside knowledge of, of that. I just, that's just what's been reported. Thank you. Jack Wasserman asks, what is the Israeli opinion of Qatar? Of Qatar? Well, they, you know, they, there's, there's, there's a couple of levels with that. It's quite a, it's quite a complicated one. Qatar, on the one hand, is um, a funder of terrorist organizations like Hamas. On the other hand, Israel does allow Qatar to bring money in to the Gaza Strip, ostensibly to help the poor. Uh, under the last Netanyahu government, there were, you know, there were Qatari officials coming in with suitcases of cash and just giving it out. And obviously most of it ended up in Hamas pockets. Uh, this government decided that it was going to end that particular practice. 
and uh, make sure that we just go straight to the bank accounts of uh, people who needed it, bypassing what they would argue, bypassing Hamas. Uh, I'm sure Hamas still had a, a way of getting it, but certainly not in the same way as a, a free-for with uh, suitcases of cash. Um, there are some relations between Israel and Qataris at the moment for the World Cup and even before. There are Israeli officials who have some you know, under the radar sort of uh, status there. We did have an economic office in the past. We did have some sort of diplomatic relations. They were broken off. Uh, Qatar is relatively close to Iran on certain issues. So it's seen, and, and don't forget, there's the Al Jazeera element, which Israel sees as extremely hostile towards it. And we saw that recently with the, with the investigation that they've tried to introduce into the ICJ, the International Cause of Justice, um, Actually, it's the ICC, the International Criminal Court, basically saying that Israel intentionally killed one of its reporters, uh, Shirin Abu Akhle. Uh, interestingly, uh, one of the Israeli or pro-Israel media watchdogs on this reporting found out this week that their, their sudden surprise star uh, eyewitness that they brought forward much of their case on is actually a person who's been associated with a terrorist organization in the past. It's clearly not a neutral person. Um, so that it's a very complicated relationship. It's certainly uh, Israel doesn't see uh, Qatar's mutual presence. It sees it close to Iran, it sees it close to Hamas, um, but it is a player in the region. So uh, Israel tries to have some influence, um, but certainly it's, it's not one of the more friendly nations. It's certainly not going to join the Abraham Accords anytime soon. Well, thank you so much. That brings us to the close of our webinar and podcast. Ashley, thank you so much for taking time to update us this week. Uh, for our thank viewers you. and listeners, please join us Friday at 1 p.m. for a webinar with Dilman Abdul Kader discussing finding peace and stability for the Kurds. Thank you all for joining us, and I hope you have a wonderful day.